0: Good morning. morning. I want to announce that I'm going to need you guys' help to keep things going. I'll be here next week teaching the, the first quarter. Then I'm going to be gone for a little bit. I'm going to be uh, speaking at the American Association of Christian Counselors one week. The following week, I'll be at the Southern Psychiatric Association. The next two weeks, I'll be in Germany speaking um, to church groups. I'll be back for a week or two. Then I'm in India for two weeks speaking to an Adventist group. And then I'm going to be speaking to non Adventist expatriates at the British Embassy. Um, then I'll be back for a long time. So, uh, I'm going to be here next week and then gone for six out of eight weeks. Russell and Tim Ryder will be alternating and teaching while I'm gone. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that you will join us today. Our whole heart's goal is to come close to you, to know your presence, your will, your purpose, and that we might participate with you in your kingdom of love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing our last uh, lesson, Lesson 13, in our quarterly Redemption in Romans, and the title this week is, All the Rest is Commentary. If you look at Sabbath's lesson, the second paragraph, it states the following, what is the role of the law, be it the whole Old Testament system, or just the Ten Commandments, in the area of salvation? Paul needed to define clearly what are the grounds upon which God accepts a person. And I thought I won't think about that. So let's let's ask that question. What would you say are the grounds upon which God accepts a person? What are the grounds? Love. His heart. Is this a, is this a stumper? <laughs> He accepts. Everyone. He accepts everyone? He has a heart of acceptance? Yes. Truth to his conscience. Truth to his conscience. Well, let me ask this question. What is it that makes a person unacceptable to God? No. Rebellion. She says rebelliousness. Rebelliousness. Um and the corollary to that is, how does our unacceptableness get changed into acceptance? Are we acceptable to God yes. in rebelliousness and hardness of heart and evilness and sinfulness? Are we acceptable to Him in that condition? Yeah, I would argue we're always acceptable to God. It's just if you're rebellious, we're not choosing we're the ones who are changed and away, not him. So, would it be acceptable to God, who loves us, for us to remain in an attitude of rebellion where we don't want him? Was that acceptable? That's. We can't because, no, but, but we're the ones who have changed. He's still accepting us. Okay, he's saying that God's heart is for us, God's heart is open to us, God is forgiving, God is gracious, God is accepting, but if we remain in rebellion, we are turning our back on him, and God can't accept that. Because it alienates us from Him. Okay. Other thoughts? Yes. It's my thought that God loves us. He loves us completely, but it's not acceptable to Him for us to be sick. Oh, I like what she said. She said God loves us completely, but it's not acceptable for, for, for to Him for us to be sick. And I was going to say, as parents, you have children. When your children are sick, your children are still acceptable to you. But what about... The sickness. Is it acceptable to you that your children stay sick? So will you accept your children in sickness if you have the power to heal their sickness? Would you say, I can't accept to see them suffering? I can't accept that I'm going to do something about it. Is that what, is that what this means? That God can't accept us in, in sin and in, in, in suffering and misery and a terminal condition in which we're slowly dying. And He wants to fix that. What reasons have you heard? Typically offered and given that we are unacceptable to God. And what reasons have you typically heard that makes us acceptable to Him? Obedience. Obey, obedience to Him makes us acceptable and disobedience makes us unacceptable? Okay. Is uh, there any, any place in there where, where our acceptance is contingent upon Christ's death? Anything along those lines? How do we fit that into our model? Because certainly we don't believe that we can reconcile with God without Christ, do we? So how do we fit that in? Thoughts? Well, let's see some quotes here. This is out of the 5th testimony, page 637. It says, after Adam and Eve had partaken of the forbidden fruit, they were filled with a sense of shame and terror. Think what's happening here. They took forbidden fruit, and what happened? They were filled with a sense of shame and terror. At, their, at first, their only thought was how to excuse their sin before God and escape the dreaded sentence of death. When the Lord inquired concerning their sin, Adam replied, laying the guilt partly upon God and partly upon his companion, The woman that thou gavest me bear, uh, to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. The woman put the blame upon the serpent, saying, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Why did you make the serpent? Why did you suffer him to come into Eden? These were the questions implied in her excuse for her sin, thus charging God with the responsibility of their fall. The spirit of self-justification originated in the father of lies and has been exhibited by all the sons and daughters of Adam. Confessions of this order are not inspired by the divine spirit and will not be acceptable to God. True repentance will lead man... To bear his guilt himself and acknowledge it without deception and hypocrisy. So, what do you hear here? What, why is this type of confession not acceptable to God? Because that doesn't do anything to help. She said, "It doesn't do anything to help." What? the condition. The condition. Is it changes. Okay. And also, if you're not willing to admit that you have done wrong, then God can't do anything for you. A- 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 the healthcare providers in the room, have you ever had a patient with a problem who denied they had a problem? <laughs> I know I have patients that have come to see me in a psychotic manic state, delusional, hallucinating uh, grandiose uh, beliefs about their powers and so forth and, and I put them on medication and the, the hallucinations and the delusions and the distorted thinking go away they come back to themselves I don't have, I don't have bipolar disorder I don't have any there's nothing wrong with me And so when they leave the hospital, stop their medicine. And what happens? Relapse back into psychosis. I've had patients that have done this three or four times before they finally admit, okay, I do have a problem. I do have a problem. Do we on earth today ever struggle with, well, you know, there's really nothing wrong with me. As a physician, can we accept our patients as long as they refuse treatment? You accept the patient, but not the condition. Well, um, you know, I'm, I'm open to treat, but I actually have patients that I fire. <laughs> I have patients I fire. Because I have some patients with, with addictions, say, and they come to me and they want me to write medicines for their addiction. In other words, they have an addiction to alcohol and benzodiazepines and they want me to write prescriptions for lots of benzodiazepines or pain medicines because they don't want to get well, they just want more of the substance to continue the addiction. Can I, can I participate in that self-destruction? I see several physicians or healthcare providers in the room shaking their heads. They know. They've had this. We've all had to fire people. It's not that I wouldn't want to help them. My heart, I'd love to help them. But with that attitude, insisting on going this path, they deny me the privilege of helping them. Is, is, is that what, what you were mentioning here in our relationship with God? He'd love to help us, but some of us won't let him. How about this? This is out of Testimonies of Ministers 171. The Apostle says, "...put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for your flesh, to fulfill the lust thereof. Let every soul heed these words, and know that the Lord Jesus will accept no compromise. In accepting and retaining workers who persist in retaining their imperfections of character, and do not give full proof of their ministry, the standard has been greatly lowered." There are many in responsible positions who do not heed the injunction of the Apostle but make provision for fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Unless the worker puts on the Lord Jesus Christ and finds in him wisdom, sanctification, redemption, how can he represent the religion of Jesus? All his efficacy, all his reward is found in Christ. Why is it that those who have been long engaged in the ministry do not grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus? I have been shown... That they gratify their selfish propensities and do only such things as agree with their tastes and ideas. They make provisions for the indulgence of pride and sensuality and carry out their selfish ambitions and plans. They are full of self esteem. But although their evil propensities may seem to them as precious as the right hand or the right eye, they must be separated from the worker or he cannot be acceptable before God. What are you hearing? What is it that makes us acceptable or not acceptable before God? Our choices. He says our choices. Attitude. She says teachable spirit. Could you say our very condition? Is, is, is acceptance with God something that is going on with God? Or is God basically saying, hey, here's the way life runs. And I'm willing, and I know because of Adam and Eve, all of you are born in a condition that is out of harmony with these principles. And if I don't help you, you will all die. So I'm going to make provision. I'm going to come and I'm going to put in place the means whereby you can move from this place that you're born to this place over here where you can have eternal life, health, happiness, where you can be back in harmony with the way life is designed to work. I can't change the way I've designed life. Life is built to run in one way. I can't change that. So, so therefore, I can't say you're acceptable over here in this condition in which things are all out of whack, when in fact that's just going to lead to your destruction. The only way you can be acceptable is when you're back in harmony with the principles that bring health and happiness in life. Is that, what, is that, is that how you hear it? Or is it God's law has been broken, His, his, his uh, um, integrity has been offended, He's angry and wrathful because we had the audacity to rebel against his sovereign rule. And therefore, something needs to be done to swage his anger and wrath so that he will accept us. She said, that's no good. That's no good. You're right. That is no good. Okay, this is out of um, Health Reformer, December 1, 1887. The apostle recognizes the importance of family relations and the powerful influence of the home. In his epistle, he enjoins certain rules upon families. He says of children, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. Why is that good and acceptable before God? Why is it good for children to respect and honor their parents? Why is that good and why is that acceptable? He's a parent. He's a parent. God's a parent. Yeah. Children as they will look to God later on. She says children look to par- parents in their early years as they will look to God later on. Another way to say it is parents stand in the place of God. Yeah, they do. There's no question. Is, is, is the way we treat our parents, does it have something to do with the type of character we're developing in our own hearts and minds? Yes. So is he actually saying back again? This is acceptable because when you honor your parents and you respect them, it leads to the development of a healthy character. It keeps you on a path that will result in your eternal healing. But if you're rebellious against your parents... Now, that doesn't mean you agree with everything your parents say or do. You may have parents that are not very healthy. But when you disagree, you can still do it in an honorable way. Isn't that true? Yeah. Respectful. A respectful way, yeah. So what makes us acceptable for God? Is it not our union with Christ and the transformation of character? What, another quote, Review and Herald, September 16, 1890. You can show to the world that there is power in the religion of Christ. How can we show that to the world? Jesus will help those who seek him with all their hearts to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. When you follow the light, walking in the path of truth, you will reflect the rays of glory and be like a city set upon the hill that cannot be hid. When the books of remembrance shall be opened, your words, your deeds of love will be acceptable before God. Why will your deeds and words be acceptable before God? Because you've been healed. There you go. You notice what it said, you will have victory. You will live a life that is different than the life of the world. It's no longer about me, self-first. It's a life in which we've had changed, we've died to self, and we live a life where we love God and love others more than self. It's a transformation. He accepts the healed. Yeah. So what role then of the law? We read that question about the law. And the first question I have is, is there more than one type of law? Let's throw out there, when you hear the word law, how many types of law are there? Throw as many types out as you can think of. Commandments. Ten commandments. Okay, what else? Ceremonial, Ceremonial law. What else? Man's law. Man's law. Okay, what else? Laws of, health. laws of health. Okay, which dietary law? Yes, what else? Nature. Laws of nature. Good, what else? Sin and death. Law of sin and death. Yeah, What? any others? See, I, I, it's important we break this down Because I, I'm going to point out to you in the scripture And how we read scripture We often get these different laws confused when we read scripture That leads to errors Here's how I broke them down And I think you pretty much hit them all First I broke down was universal principles The law upon which life is built Universal principles Law of love, law of liberty, law of worship law of, And then laws of health, laws of nature These are principles upon which things run Then there are written law Written law Written law by God, written law by man. What kind of written laws? Well, God obviously we mentioned the Ten Commandments, written law. Now, there's a big point of divergence on that. When I suggest that the written law of the Ten Commandments is not universal principles, it doesn't fall under the universal principles one. A lot of people get really bent out of shape with that because the Ten Commandments are part of the moral code. It's part of God's character. But were the ten were universal principles ever added, or were they just eternal? emanated from God's card. Maybe the laws of nature we could say were added later. But certainly not the law of love. What about the commandments, the ten? Were they added or were they always in existence? They were, added. they were added later. Did angels in heaven need a law to honor mom and dad? To not commit adultery? That things passed down through the generations, third and fourth generation, as it says in the second commandment? Even the Sabbath commandment didn't exist until the Sabbath was created upon creation week of this planet so the ten commandments were added later they weren't always there but the law of love upon which they're they're founded was always there never had a beginning, never had an end did God give criminal law for the Israel society did he give civil law such as property ownership and marriage and divorce did he give ceremonial law religious rituals, diet, hygiene all these laws were given what about by men when we have criminal and civil laws by men and then there's two more orders of law that I thought of, and that is rules, which are not law, rules, like parental rules, brush your teeth before you go to bed, curfew, what time you're going to be home, organizational rules, school rules, what, what, what type of clothes you have to wear, absentee policies, work rules, the type of dress and, and what, what type of conduct's appropriate work. We have these rules. And then we have social rules and conventions. Don't come to church in a swimsuit. I mean, it's 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 not a law. You won't be arrested for it. But there's pressure there not to do that, isn't there? It's a social convention or norm, isn't it? Yes, it's it's pretty. We pretty much all obey that one. Yeah. Or in Eastern societies, uh, take your shoes off before you come in someone's house and don't walk around with your shoes on. I mean, these social conventions and rules, and they're pretty well strictly followed as well. With all this in mind, with these different laws in mind, let's turn to Sunday's lesson. And in the first paragraph... It says in Romans fourteen one through three the question of eating of meats that may may have been sacrificed to idols. The Jerusalem Council ruled the Gentile converts should refrain from using such foods in their diet. But there was always the question as to whether meats sold in the public markets had come from animal sacrificed to idols. Some Christians didn't care about that at all. Others, if there was the slightest doubt, chose a to eat vegetables instead. This issue had nothing to do with the question of vegetarianism and healthful living, nor is Paul implying in this passage that the distinction between clean and unclean meats had been abolished. This is not the subject under consideration. If the words he may eat all things were taken to mean that now any animal clean or otherwise could be eaten, they would be misapplied. Comparison with other New Testament passages would rule against such an application. What are your thoughts? You know the passage in in Romans where Paul says, the man with great faith can eat anything he wants, the man with weak faith eats only vegetables, Um, so forth. With the laws in mind, how do you understand what what Paul was talking about? Which which was the law under consideration in Romans 14? The ceremonial One suggestion ceremonial law. I'm going to suggest no. It wasn't that that's one of the ones people think the law of worship. That's exactly what it was, the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. We become like that, which we admire in worship. And the issue here was, if your faith is weak, and you actually believe that an idol, a piece of stone or wood, has power over the food, so that if you eat this food, it somehow, somehow will now have power over your life, then you will be changed. You will, you, will, you will live in anxiety, you will live in fear, you will live oppressed, you will you will have power over your mind because of this belief that this that this food now has something over you. If, however, you've come to see the truth that a piece of wood and stone has no impact on the food at all, you're more enlightened, maybe your faith is great, you've matured in the faith, then you can eat that without being negatively impacted by it. Let's see if I can give an example. Imagine that your grandma uh, is very, very ill, has had a massive stroke, she's 93, in the hospital, on a ventilator, and they say she's brain dead, wiped out, gone and she's only being kept alive by the machine, you and your sibling have to decide what to do. You're going to keep the machine on, you're going to turn it off. If you believe in your mind, you believe in your mind that pulling the machine is nothing more than allowing nature to take its course, and that's all it is. Your sibling believes if you take the machine off, you're murdering your grandmother. Can both of you terminate the machine with the same consequence to yourselves? If your sibling does it, what will happen to them? Well, they will be damaged by that, won't they? You see, this is the power that a belief has over us. And Paul is saying if you believe that 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 that, that stone or piece of wood has power, then you better not eat the meat. This is a law of worship. Yes. Notwithstanding the example, the point made the law of worship, that doesn't suspend the law of health. Well, we're about to get there. We're about to get there, Ross. Thank you. Thank you. So here's the three laws. First law is law of worship. And here's where things get mistaken. Sometimes people think it's the ceremonial. And this is where much of Christianity has come in. They've looked at this text and they said, ah, we know it's true that, number one, piece of wood and stone has no power over food. That's true. We also know it's true that ceremonial law has been done away with at the cross. And we cannot be ceremonially unclean no matter what we eat. Because there's no ceremonial law anymore. Both of these things are true. But as Russ points out, they've forgotten the third law. And that's the laws of health. Laws of nutrition. They haven't been done away with. They're still in existence. And because of the confusion on the laws, people have said, oh, we're free to eat anything we want... Ignoring now the laws of nutrition and much of Christianity suffers under terrible illness and sickness and disease that they would be able to avoid if they would practice principles of healthy living in harmony with the laws of nutrition even though they realize that there's nothing ceremonially unclean about eating whatever you want yes Is that because they think the health laws are part of the ceremonial law yeah, I think, I think partially they may think that the laws of health were part of the ceremonial law, and in fact, God did codify some of those things in that way, because it gave them more power to, to help influence the people in that direction. But were the laws of nutrition done away with at the cross? No. And when we remember that, you go, oh, okay. Now, if we violate the laws of nutrition, are there consequences for that? Are there spiritual consequences for that? I see some heads shaking. Anybody doubt that? What are the spiritual consequences for for violating the the laws of health? She says your mind isn't as clear. Prefrontal cortex is where we appreciate spiritual truths. I'll give you a real simple one. How about sleep deprivation? It's one of the principles of healthful living that we get regular sleep. If you violate that principle of healthful living and you... Just deprive yourself of sleep. Stay up all night. One night of sleep deprivation undermines prefrontal cortex function. You won't score as well in your exams. You won't think as well. You won't process well. You won't problem solve as well. You'll be more irritable. You'll be more moody. you are more likely to to be impulsive and say things you wouldn't want to be said. Very simple. Foods. Certain foods can also slow the thinking. I I know that when I have certain presentations to make or certain... um, very important meetings to attend i will either and this is this is where fasting comes in why 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 do we fast do we influence god by our fasting what he sees i'm really serious this time he'll help me now yeah, I'm serious. It's to clear your mind. It's exactly what it's for. When we fast, we actually help focus the mind more. Why? Well, because when you eat foods, not only the foods you've eaten, but the, the, the gastric um, response re- releases various neuropeptides. Actually, peptides in the gut, like um, vasoactive peptide, uh, cholecystokinin, and some of these things, will actually have neurological uh, consequences. This is why after we eat heavy meals, we can maybe get sleepy, want to go to sleep. We can maybe not think as sharp. Uh, so there is a consequence to, to, to our dietary habits. And if we eat heavy, fatty, rich foods, it slows the thinking. Bottom section, it says, Though we need to keep in mind the principles seen in today's lesson, are there not times and places where we need to step in and judge? If not a person's heart, at least a person's actions. Are we to step back and say and do nothing in every situation? Isaiah 56.10 describes watchmen as dumb dogs. They cannot bark. How can we know when when to speak and when to keep silent? How do we strike the right balance here? All righty. Dumb dogs. So who should we be barking at today? No, seriously. Serious question. When do we when do we know when to step in and judge? When, can you can we draw any clear clear demarcations when it's right for us to judge and to speak and when it's not? Some of these are going to go well. That's obvious. How about when we're in positions of responsibility, such as parents raising their children? Are parents to step in and make judgments and to speak clearly to their kids on things on right and wrong? Are they not? Yes. Absolutely, yes. How about in healthcare practitioners treating a patient? Do we have responsibility to speak clearly yes. that certain things are unhealthy, destructive, and damaging? Yes. Do we have that responsibility? Yes. Absolutely. How about uh, a preacher or teacher exhorting a group? Is there room for exhortation about what's healthy and what's not healthy to speak clearly on such things? Yes. Okay, so all those are pretty clear. How about one on one, people to people in the church? I can't believe you came to church wearing those jeans. Don't, this is the house of God. You got that dangly that stuff from your ears? I think okay. Yeah? Oh, she says, if you love the person. Oh, wow. Does that throw a different shade on it? Yeah, in fact, let me, this is out of First Timothy, testimony one sixty six. It says, "I have seen great sacrifice which Jesus made to redeem man. He did not consider his life too dear to sacrifice." Jesus said, "Love one another as I have loved you." Now, get this: Do you feel when a brother errs that you could give your life to save him? If you feel thus, you can approach him and affect his heart. You are just the one to visit that brother. But it is lamentable fact that many who profess to be brethren are not willing to sacrifice any of their opinions or judgments to save a brother. There is too little love and a selfish spirit is manifested. What is the key to that? No. If you love them. Yes. I have a problem. What do you do then with the uh, idea judge not lest you be judged"? Excellent question because we're coming to that right now. Great question. Great question. That was uh, First Testimony, page 166. If you love your child, and your child starts smoking, do you ignore it or do you go to them? Do you make a judgment that that's wrong? Or do you say, no, that's okay, I won't judge that, that's okay. In that sense, you're not judging the person, you're judging the Wrong actions. Oh, okay. She says we're not judging the person, we're judging the wrong actions. Isn't that what we're always judging? We're never judging people, are we? (laughs) What's more loving to prevent your child from smoking or to allow them to smoke? Okay, how about your three year old is playing with matches and lighter fluid? Do you make a judgment about that situation? This is dangerous. I'm going to make a judgment. This is dangerous. Somebody could get hurt. Do you intervene or do you say, I'm not going to judge that? What's my place to judge? Is that a judgment? Or do we think of judgment only as moral judgments? Or is judgment the process of intelligent decision-making, weighing healthy and unhealthy? As physicians, do physicians make judgments all the time? But what do we call a physician's judgment? A diagnosis. Yeah, but that's a judgment, isn't it? We're diagnosing. Should we diagnose situations, circumstances, if you see a brother in sin, what's the scripture say? Rebuke him, love your neighbor as yourself. That's a, that's a Deuteronomy. See your brother in sin, rebuke him, love your neighbor as yourself. It's exact words to go. Now why is that the, 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 the admonition? How is that loving? Just what we said. If you see a child, your child doing something, starting uh, to, something that's self-destructive, if you love the child, you don't just ignore it. They may ignore you, they may ignore the rebuke, they may rebel, but if you love them, i got to tell you, I learned this in, in dealing with people who, are, who have gotten themselves in relationships and gotten engaged to get married, and I judge that situation as that is a destructive relationship right there. That is going to be harmful. And if I love the person, if it's a friend of mine, if it's a family member of mine, somebody that's close to me, I don't do this to strangers. (laughs) But if it's somebody that's close to me, I go to them, and I will tell them once, just once. Here's why I think that's a wrong course, and I think this is what's going to happen. Here are the evidences why I've come to this conclusion, and I advise you call off the wedding. Has that ever worked? Uh, no, it doesn't work, and I don't. I don't. I don't actually expect it to work. Then I, I'm planting a seed because I know it's going to go wrong. I'm planting a seed so that when it does go wrong, they'll remember. Hey, someone loved me enough to come to me and tell me. Yes. We had somebody do that to so our marriage twenty five years ago. Told us that we, um, we weren't right for each other because we were two 8 personalities. 25 years ago. So, uh, yeah, so that, that, so what does that mean? The reason, I think it has to do with ultimately the motive. If, if you truly love a person when you're coming to them, a man convinced against his will is up to the same. I think, so. Exactly. So if, you, if you're if you coming to a person and saying, like, I don't smoke, smoking's bad, you smoke, you're bad. That, that's the communication that we often communicate when we're, when we're working with somebody that's in a on a side of error, and then we come to the point where most, most cases, when we judge that person, it's to elevate ourselves, even the worst those things sinners as well. So the motive has to be true love, and how it's going to affect the relationship with Christ. Yeah, I love that, and when I deal with patients, I'll say things like, look, I, I like you just as much whether you smoke or don't smoke. My lungs aren't going to get damaged by it. Yours will. I like you just, if you take your med, don't make take your med. You're the one who's going to miss work. You're not going to be there to take care of your kids, be in the hospital. Hey, you know what? But, but I'll like you just as much. So my attitude towards the patient isn't affected by whether they make healthy or unhealthy choices. Their life is affected by that. And so when I counsel people that are friends or family, I say, look, I'm going to like you just as much. If you decide to go forward with this, remember, um, you, you do it. But I'm, I'm cautioning you, and I'm telling you this not to make a decision because you should do what I think is right for you. I'm telling you this, this is data, this is information that you need to hear, listen, evaluate for yourself, come to your own conclusion, and if you still think the marriage is right, go for it. But I wanted you to have this information to make your decision upon. Yeah. So I think that's a great point. What's well, the opposite? If you didn't do that, and if out of what we socially think of as love, we don't say it,
1: when that marriage
0: falls apart, and then you say, well, I thought so, I saw this and this, well, where were you when I was making that decision? Exactly. I think when it becomes very evident that it's the loving thing to do to at least give that person that opportunity. Yeah, share the information to say, here's what I'm seeing, but you need to make your choice. Don't make the choice because I'm seeing it. Hear what I'm seeing, evaluate it, and see if there's substance to what my concerns are, and then make a decision based on the substance. Yeah, I think that's right. Yes? And what about the stubborn people that try to make it work continuously just because they want to prove you wrong? Yes, that, that shows the... the, nonsense, the ...denial. <laughs> Yeah, denial. Um, So what about judging our leadership? Talk about judging. Is it ever appropriate to do this? Our church leadership. Is it ever appropriate to judge God? Thoughts about that? Romans chapter 3, verse 4. Paul says, God, may you win your case when you take it into court. Think about this. I want you to imagine you're in a loving, healthy marriage relationship and somebody comes to your spouse who is influential in that person's life. Maybe a sibling, maybe a parent, maybe a cousin. Somebody who's influential in your spouse's life. And they lie to your spouse with with all the deceptiveness of the devil showing forged pictures and everything else and, and tell your spouse that you are having an affair. And of course you haven't done anything wrong. Your spouse believes the lie and and moves out because they believe that you are cheating and having an affair. Now you've done nothing wrong, but and you still love your spouse. And you realize with great compassion and grace in your heart that your spouse is a victim of an evil person who has tricked them and lied to them. What would you need to do to reconcile with your spouse? Would you say that louder? Yourself. Prove yourself. Would you then go on the... Would you welcome investigation? Please investigate me. Would you tell your spouse who believes the lie? Please investigate me. Come look at the evidence. Judge... Uh, check me out. Would you, would you promote this type of investigation? Ultimately, would you need to give evidence demonstrating your innocence that your spouse could then make a judgment on and realize that they were lied to? This is God's position. God was lied about. We believe the lies. He has gone on the offensive to give evidence to win us back to trust. He's saying, please investigate and make a judgment on the evidence. Yes? Probably everyone in this room knows that a heart, not is heart, not a heart, do the beep, beep, beep. And I've often learned that life as when I'm looking at a person and wondering, if this is this specific behavior that happened? God as well. It's like good, 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 good as we come. And then all of a sudden you have this real... High one that's I was like, wow, what happened here? And then it's good that incident. They had proof in their track record already. Whatever happened at this specific, specific spot, you're right, needs to be investigated. But it have got so many you know, so much proof behind them. How much proof is behind God's character when Satan started his rebellion? Uh, but then, how did a third of the angels get taken in by that? Then because it made no but they knew God's character, right? But I mean, wasn't that what the whole great controversy about the fact that they just experienced when all you ever told is truth, when error is presented? But here's the next point: when Lucifer presented his lies, what was the history of Lucifer's character? They had no reason. At that point in time, wasn't his character just as pure and holy as God's character at that point in time? Yes. Yes. So this is the trouble when someone comes to you, this is my point, someone you love and trust tells you this. So you have someone that your spouse you trust, but you also have another person who's always been loyal and faithful and true, and somebody who's got a history of, of reliability who you also love and trust. That's where the power of deception is, that's why Lucifer was able to deceive, because those angels loved and trusted him from years of relationship and experience, but he was lying. Okay, so question, judge not that you be not judged, why not? This is in Monday's lesson, uh, and it's actually in the lesson, it tells us, judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and what measure ye meet out, ye will be measured against you. Why do you try to pull a moat out of your brother's eye when you've got a beam in your own eye? What is it saying? This is pretty straightforward, consistent with everything we've talked about here already today. Christ said in Matthew 12, 34 and 35, From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings forth evil out of the evil stored up in him. Put that passage together with the same measure you judge others, you will be judged by. And what does it mean? You're doing those same things yourself. When you judge another person, you demonstrate the type of heart and character you have. So you're actually revealing the very condition of your own nature from the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. When you see a 40-year-old man cursing at a 5-year-old little girl calling her every bad name you've ever heard in the book, you don't look at that and go, wow, what a horrible little girl. You're, you go, whoa, that man's got problems. It's very evident. The the measure we judge others by is a reflection of whether we have compassion, grace, forgiveness, goodness restored in our heart, or whether we have a punitive, judgmental, legalistic hardness of heart of our own nature. And so why are we judged with that measure? Because God's judgment is a diagnosis. It's a diagnosis of our condition. That's why we're judged with it. And so when we judge others, we're revealing what our very condition is. The next paragraph says the citation from Isaiah forty five twenty three supports the thought that all must appear for judgment. Every knee and every tongue individualizes the summons. The implication is that each one will have to answer for his or her own fate. No one can answer for another. Uh, in the important sense, we are not our brother. In this important sense, we are not our brother's keeper. It's <coughs> talking about the passage in Romans where Paul says everyone will appear before the judgment seat of God. You've heard this passage, right? How have you traditionally heard that? When you've heard that presented, everyone will appear before the judgment seat of God. Do you get a sense of peace and warmth come over you? Or apprehension and foreboding? Okay, perfect love casts out all fear. So if this is being presented to incite anxiety and fear, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. So would you hear it differently if it was said this way? Everyone will will appear before the diagnostic eye of God. Is that different? That if I change the meaning? Or is that the same thing? Is God's judgment a judicial enactment to weigh out the goods and the bads and decide how much punishment you deserve? Or is his judgment the diagnosis of your very condition? Which is it? Any evidence for that? Any evidence? Hosea 4.17 This is God speaking. Ephraim is joined to his idols. Leave him alone. Is that a judgment? It's a diagnosis. It's a judgment. Did God's diagnosis or judgment here cause Ephraim to be tied to his idols? No. Why is it that no one can answer for another, as the lesson says? Because each one of us are responsible for which condition we, our hearts develop. Last paragraph. It says, a person should not be made to violate his or her own conscience, even if the conscience is overly sensitive. What do you think about that? The first question I have is, can a conscience be overly sensitive? I just think a conscience can, I, I thought about that, maybe I'm just overanalyzing, sometimes I do that. Um, I, I was thinking that, that the conscience itself is either healthy or unhealthy. And a healthy conscience cannot be overly sensitive. But sometimes people can have an imbalanced mind or an imbalanced judgment where they have conscience that's working, but their reason is not working. You see, our judgment is the combination of your reasoning powers which is dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, where you reason, think, strategize, and plan, and conscience, which is orbital prefrontal cortex and ventral medial prefrontal cortex. Those cortexes working together make and form what we call judgment. And if we have some of that circuitry not working well, dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex isn't working, but orbital cortex is working. So we have the sense of conscience, conviction of wrongdoing, but we're not reasoning, we're not thinking. What, what, what's the problem with that? Well, if we have conscience and we feel a conviction of duty, that we don't reason out the evidence and truth, we can burn to death with the Branch Davidians in Waco. We can tie bombs on ourselves and blow people up in the name of our God. We can shoot abortion doctors and think we're righteous. These people are conscientious people, but they're not reasonable people. We can also do things like, uh, I'm going to conscientiously partake in the health message, and I'm going to eat eat. Only the right foods, even if it kills me. <laughs> yeah, and I've seen that, literally, yes. Doesn't their conscience maybe operate on their view of God, how it is, or how to Excellent. She says, doesn't the conscience operate on the view of God? Exactly, and this goes to back to the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. So our reason and our conscience are directly affected by the type of God we worship. So if we worship a punitive and authoritative God, it affects our reason and brings us under a sense of inappropriate guilt, and this sense of needing to somehow work hard, and these types of things. Yeah, exactly, well said. Would you say that conscience is the Holy of working in... She says, "With the conscience, the Holy Spirit working, I would say the conscience is the faculty through which the Holy Spirit brings conviction, much like uh, your eye is the faculty which takes photons and turns it into neural energy and, and that, where you can see. but the eye is not the sun. okay the Holy Spirit would be like the sun, the conscience would be like your eye that is uh, susceptible to the movements of the Holy Spirit." And just as you can stare at the sun or just as you can do things to destroy your eye so that you can no longer see, people can engage in behaviors which will sear their consciences, destroy the faculty. So even though the Holy Spirit is just as much available, just as much pouring out His influence upon our hearts and minds, we become insensitive to the movements of the Spirit of God. So no, the conscience is not the Holy Spirit. The conscience is a faculty that's sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Wednesday's lesson says, read, read Romans 14.5 One man considers one day more sacred than another Another man considers every day alike Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind The lesson asks if this passage applies to the fourth commandment And they argue that it does not What are your thoughts on that? Does this passage apply to the fourth commandment? I think a person needs to be convinced that the Sabbath is right In order to keep it but you, you can't, you can't be forced to keep the Sabbath because then you're not going to it Our A student gets it again. <laughs> yes. Yes, Margaret, this is exactly right. So question, is, it, is Christ important to our salvation? Yes. Does every person need to be fully persuaded in their mind about Christ? Yes. If a person is not fully persuaded in their mind about Christ, can Christ do them any good? No. So, is this passage really talking about which day we observe, or it's talking about that the Sabbath can do you no good until you're fully persuaded in your own mind? So that if you are doing it under a sense of obligation, if you are avoiding work and not doing any of the stuff you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath, for the... Right, that's rebellion, she says. This is what the Jews are doing. They wanted to be sure Christ was down off the cross, so they could... Observe Sabbath of the God they just killed. And there's something wrong with that. Right? Something wrong with that. They were not fully persuaded in their own mind about the Sabbath. Well, how could that be? They, they, were, they had the wrong day of the week? So when we think about being fully persuaded in our own mind about the Sabbath, what are the issues we need to be persuaded about? Obviously one of them is we do have to have some knowledge about which day of the week is the Sabbath. That's pretty basic. That's pretty obvious. Every educated non-Adventist Christian theologian will tell you the scripture teaches the Sabbath is sunset Friday, sunset Saturday. Every educated theologian for every other denomination admits that. But then they go on to say, but, it, but by convention and tradition, it was changed and now we worship. The Bible doesn't teach it, but tradition, the church teaches it. They all know that. Saturday, Sabbath, we know that we know the day of the week. Is that all we need to be convinced about, to be fully persuaded in our own, own mind about this day? About its importance? The Jews knew that, and they crucified the Lord of the Sabbath. So you can be a Sabbath observer and still be God's enemy. Mm -hmm. There's something more. What else do we need to be fully persuaded about in regard to Sabbath? The goodness of God. The goodness of God. How is that connected to Sabbath? See, because a person who goes to church on Sunday every week can say, I'm persuaded on the goodness of God. He is gracious. He is forgiving. He's loving. He's kind. I'm persuaded on that. How does that connect to Sabbath? Because the Sabbath itself is connected so much with all of the evidence that has been given by God. And there's a day where we can look at the evidence and and worship Him just because of what we see. I I like what she's saying. She's saying the Sabbath is uh, connected with the evidence that God has given us to help us see His true character. And it's a day set aside where we can consider that evidence. Uh, I'm going to play the devil's advocate here for a minute, Okay. So that means our Sunday-keeping friends are forbidden from evaluating all the evidences God has given on Sunday. So they can set aside Sunday and still evaluate the same evidence. They can evaluate the same evidence, <laughs> Well then, what's the point of the Sabbath? Other thoughts? Well, God created the Sabbath at the end of Creation Week for that specific person reason, that purpose and it, it was a, just like he created light on the first day you can't say well maybe he we did it on the third or the fourth or the fifth it, it was specifically created for us to be yes. out of obedience and respect for God out of obedience and respect for God, yes uh, people who worship on any day can ponder the love of God, they can ponder uh, being a God of freedom, they can ponder the creation, they can ponder the nature, they can ponder everything that Sabbath viewers keep. The one thing that gets missed is the unchanging nature of God. That God's saved today, tomorrow, and the next day. So yes, I, yes, If somebody knows that Sunday is something that's just a tradition of man, and the Saturday, so God's set up and still chooses your tradition as man, does that change your character? Character of the person? I think if their heart is rebellious, it could. I think if they believe it doesn't really matter that Sabbath is an institution of 24 hours of rest every seven days to be observed on any seven days one decides to apply the institution of Sabbath rather than a specifically tied to a day, which is commonly taught now. This was taught in evangelical Christianity. Sabbath is an institution of 24 hours of rest out of every seven, not tied to a specific day of the week. That's how it's being presented. If I, uh, one time I heard an example, and it, uh, it kind of stuck with me. Um, if your husband asked you, let's go out on a date, Thursday night, and I want to show up on that date, a special time with my husband, versus, you know what, you're going to show up Thursday. I think I'm going to show up Friday. Yeah. Yeah, i 've heard that and, that, and it almost has some appeal almost uh, until until you think about because this is what they say well God comes and spends special time with us on Sabbath until so you read in Eden that God came and spent every day in the cool of the day with them. He came and spent personally time with them on every day of the week in the cool of the day. so are we suggesting that god doesn 't spend time with us the rest of the week and we 're only going to spend time with Here's the another analogy I, but I've heard given is that you have seven envelopes. Seven envelopes, all identical. One envelope has a $20 bill in it. And that's the special blessing of the... Symbolically, the special blessing of the Sabbath. I've heard pastors tell me this. I said, good, tell me, what is that $20? What is that special thing? Um, you know, they never come up with anything. It's all metaphorical. Let's see if we can't come up with something real, tangible, legitimate, objective. And Margaret was alluding to it earlier. And that... And that is what is the context of the Sabbath's origins? Creation. Yes. Go ahead. The power of any tradition is rooted in repetition. Sabbath is a tradition to root us in the power of our creation. Partially, partially. I think there's much more. I think there's much more. Um, what is it that contro? Yes. Well, for- Are we supposed to remember. Sorry, yeah, back there, yeah. Remember the Creator. That makes us the preacher. and we acknowledge His sovereignty. Okay, there's another reason. So we got a reason here. We got another reason here. Go ahead. Well, uh, God says He's the Lord of the Sabbath. You can't take His lordship away. If you're in the owner of something, you can't touch it. Life, you can't change it. Ever. She says that He's the Lord of the Sabbath, and He can't take His lordship away. So He's not the Lord of Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Well, he he's only Lord on Sabbath. That's the other six days of the week he's not Lord. He says that I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Right, but he's not Lord of the other days? <laughs> so this, this was not a denial of his Lordship of all days. This was a point to the, to the Jews who were who claiming that somehow the Sabbath has some authority over him. He was saying, I am the Lord of all of this, including the Sabbath. And so he was establishing that he is over the Sabbath, not the Sabbath over him. That's what he was establishing there. I don't think it was specifically saying, this is the day I'm going to be Lord of. He's Lord of the whole thing. But he was talking to a bunch of Jews who had the Sabbath as a law over him. And he's saying, no, you've got it backwards. I'm the Lord over the Sabbath. I think that's what was happening there. Uh, Boy, a lot of hands. I guess we're making people uncomfortable. A lot of hands. Yes, go. Yeah, Okay. I like this. Now, this is, a, this is another important reason. I've heard several reasons. We're going to tie them together here in a minute. Freedom, she said. Yes. Okay, I like this, too. This is even getting better. We're getting focused. One day, he didn't use his power. Let's put this together now. So here we are, Creation Week. And what's happening in the universe during Creation Week of Planet Earth? There's already a war in heaven. Satan has already started his rebellion. Angels are already there's a disaffection going on. There's a controversy waging back and forth. Can I trust God? Is God a power monger? Is he is he someone who's selfish? Is he selfless? And in this context of this war, the angels arguing back and forth. God begins creating. Let there be light, let the firmament come forth, so forth, so forth, so forth. Let us make man in our image. Satan is still on hand. Lucifer is saying, Wow. Guys, I never said God wasn't powerful. Look at how much power he just wielded. I mean, we could take a couple ounces of matter, turn it into energy. We call it a nuclear explosion. God just made an entire sun, an entire planet, a solar system. I mean, he is powerful. And guys, I'm telling you, he's flexing his muscles. He's trying to tell you, you better get in line or else I've got the power to wipe you out and replace you anytime I want. Look, I just made two more intelligent creatures down there. I can do that anytime. You think Satan wasn't twisting things this way? sure he was. And so what does God say in the face of these allegations? Universe, you've heard the allegations against us. You've seen the evidences we've just given. Universe, I rest my case. Take 24 hours aside. Consider all the evidences given. What does it say about God in the context of an assault against his rightful rulership, his, his way of governing, his beneficence and goodness, that instead of using power to coerce beings, he actually creates a day for freedom to think. No coercion, no pressure. You come up to your own conclusion. The Sabbath, and this is where we get to the evidence, the Sabbath itself is proof that Satan lied. Because if God were the kind of being Satan says, there would be no Sabbath. It wouldn't exist. Its weekly existence, as as Kathy said, is evidence of God's character. On day one through six, we learn God has power. On day seven, we see His character. That he leaves his creatures free. And it's evidence itself. This is why Satan hates this day. This is why he wants to destroy it. So what does it makes the Sabbath holy? It's invested with the very elements of God's character. He presented the truth over this week in love. And he left his creatures free to make up their own mind. It was all embodied in the weekly Sabbath. And so what do we find then that the Sabbath is connected to? We find it connected to the character of God through, through the truth, love, and freedom. We also find that the fundamental questions of life that we struggle with on planet Earth are answered in the Sabbath. Where did I come from? Answered in the Sabbath. Why am I here? Answered in the Sabbath. Where am I going? answered in this Sabbath, all contained in this, in this day, this evidence of who we are. We're creatures created by God. We didn't evolve from slime. Why are we here? For a purpose in the setting of the controversy. He made mankind in his image to answer questions that were alleged by him. And as Adam and Eve came to, as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit come into unity and create beings, God created Adam and Eve in His image. They could come together in unity of love and create beings in their image. And if they would have been faithful and, and raised their children in this world as God designed, the universe would have looked in and said, oh, I get it. God didn't create us to wait on Him and, and, and be slaves to Him. He, uh, just as Adam and Eve are constantly giving themselves for the benefit of their children to protect and uplift, God is constantly giving Himself for our good. Satan's lies would have been exposed. His other lies about why I wasn't included in special councils. You would see as Adam and Eve are planning on how they're going to expand the garden and and do this new renovation over here. Why didn't they include the the giraffe and the elephant and the donkey and the, and why why didn't they include these animals in these discussions? Because Adam and Eve are selfish and power mongers? Or because these animals have nothing to offer to the conversation? It's a lesson. Why was Lucifer excluded from conversations that Michael was included in? Not because God is selfish, but because Lucifer had nothing to contribute to those conversations. All this was given. The Sabbath shows us all this. Rightly understood, it enlightens our mind and breaks through this darkness about God and his character. And it was also given to man as a protection to us, to our enlightenment, as evidence of God's true nature and character. And then, so do we need to be fully persuaded in our own mind on all of these things? Yes, Yes, everyone. If we just do it out of sense of obligation like the Jews did, we miss all of this. And in fact, the Sabbath gets turned into a day of arbitrary um, obedience by an arbitrary God. And it becomes a a thing that darkens our mind about God rather than something that enlightens Him. And then should should we call the Sabbath a delight? Should we be convinced so that the Sabbath is a joy? Each week we look forward to this day. More than every day of the week. Do you think that gets easier the older we get? Yes. Yes? It's like I look forward to rest every week now. When I was a kid, I wanted to play. Well, if we're if our kids are, are not enjoying the Sabbath, we're not presenting it to them right. The day should be the day. And I, first thing, you know, you know, I have a couple young people that live with me now, and I told them, you know, in our home, no homework on Sabbath. No homework. Yay, happy days, happy days. No, no housework, no chores on Sabbath. It's a day of freedom from all that work. Isn't that a joyful thing? Yeah. Gracious Father, we thank you that, that you are incredibly patient, loving, and the source of all truth. Enlighten our minds. May we appreciate this day. May we be fully persuaded in our own mind about your character. The evidence that the existence of this day every week is a promise, a guarantee, a proof that Satan's a liar and a fraud. And with you we have genuine freedom. Pour your spirit into our hearts and minds. Write your law there that we can go out and live this truth, live this love, present this freedom to others. We pray in your holy name. Amen.